Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram. Hello Andrew. Hello Simon. It's been a while since our last episode and uh, the delay uh, was caused uh, by my losing my friend and co-host of the Classic Lenses podcast, uh, Dr. Carl Havens. Um, as you may imagine, uh, it's been a difficult time and uh, we managed to record uh, a new show yesterday and uh, pretty much as a result of that, I'm in a better place now to come back to the LFPP. Um, now, before we uh, get too far into the show, um, I just want to thank Rachel Brewster-Wright for being our guest uh, last time out. And I'm pleased to say that what sounded like a disaster in the background didn't, uh, it wasn't as serious as it, as it sounded. So uh, everything's been sorted out. Um, the vases have been put back on the table and, and, and so on. So uh, all is well uh, with, with, with Rachel. Graham has been arrested and um, up before the magistrate, I believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was spotted on CCTV. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, then we back to this week's show. Um, we have a guest, and uh, he's been waiting in the wings very, very patiently because uh, he was due to uh, be on the show um, just before we ha we had to pull the recording. Um, and that is, we have Matt Marash. Um, and he is, he is with us now. Um, hello, Matt. Oh, hey! Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's uh, thank thank you for thank you for your patience, Matt. Um, and um, uh, and I'm just thinking, just as that wasn't a really particularly good introduction, there was it, um, Andrew? You oh, know fine. more about Matt than, than than I do. Let's let's, let's give Matt a, a proper introduction. Yeah. Well, what can I say about Matt? Is he's uh, when I when I. Matt's always responded to emails. He's been super, super friendly. And other people out there in the internet world have said, I can't believe Matt Marash answered my email. Well, he's just been one of the most approachable guys out there. And when I first heard him on the FPP a number of years ago, he'll perhaps tell us how long ago that was. Uh, he just came, immediately came across as a super nice and enthusiastic guy. And when we started this podcast, he was, uh, he was right up there on my list of uh, wannabe guests and and i'm just so thrilled and and i'm trying not to be too um fanboyish <laughs> <laughs> but welcome matt it's really lovely to uh to have you on was oh that, well, thanks was, thanks for the better, intro no that was, was great that a better welcome was that better was, i would say was, so definitely better <laughs> <laughs> so matt tell us a little bit about your story because as far as i'm concerned you were kind of born, come out of your mother's womb with an 8x10 camera, but I'm sure you didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I actually got started a lot later than I think every single one of your guests thus far uh, on the podcast. So I, I didn't really find uh, photography or film photography until I was oof, probably 23, something like that. Very, very, very end of school, like my the the very tail end of my senior year of college. And... Even the first year of that was was digital, but then things accelerated once I picked up a Hasselblad. I forced myself to start shooting a roll of film a week at least. I started listening to these crazy guys from New Jersey uh, right when they started in 2009. And that fall, I picked up, well, I didn't pick it up. I, I stole my professor's uh, 8x10 view camera. He was getting ready to throw it out and... I asked him to show me how to use it, and it's kind of uh, spiraled down from there. Yeah, that was the Kodak. Uh, was that the Kodak 
Yes, the the Eastman uh, Eastman Commercial B, the old magnesium camera. Yeah, and that's quite a chunky beast, presumably. Um, actually, it was super light. Um, magnesium is like a little bit lighter than uh, than aluminum at the same okay. weight, and it was a crazy good camera. I really used to knock it all the time. And it wasn't until just before I ended up donating it back to uh, my professor and the University of Finley where I went um, that I saw all these videos where Ansel Adams was using like the same camera throughout the 50s. And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> so, so the camera's gone back to your professor. You don't have it anymore. No, it's uh, so it's kind of gone back into the system. So uh, I took the camera on knowing that I was going to use it and get use out of it and learn the process. And the whole, the goal was always to get it back uh, to my professor, uh, Spencer Cunningham, uh, in better than he gave it to me condition. So when uh, the next student uh, who's now got the camera, I can't remember the young man's name, but he's got the camera now and it has an additional lens and a bunch of film holders. And I think I gave him like 100 sheets of X-ray film. So he's he's set. Yeah, I've just made a note to talk about X-ray film. We'll come on to that. <laughs> uh, when you when you first met the FPP guys, and, and I think it was at the Photo District News PDN show, which I think is maybe New York. Is it New York? Yes, that's the New York City show. So yep, you, that was you turned up. I remember the story because it's been told a few times, but I do remember hearing it fairly early on. With you turned up with this camera on on your back in in a rucksack. How far down the large format journey were you? Did you? Had you been using it long? What, what was what was the learning curve? No, point? the learning. I uh, a lot of times I'll just force myself into something, just dive right in mm -hmm. uh, with little to no uh, training. So I think at that point I had had the camera maybe maybe a month and a half, and I'd only run a few sheets through it. So uh, as I, it's funny as I joined FPP, I was still really really learning my way through uh, a lot of these processes, a lot of a lot of the different films and. Um, yeah, it's just kind of uh, been thousands of sheets since then. <laughs> and what um, what is it about large format? Let's just start there. What is it about large format that really hooks you? Because you, I know you shoot other formats, but why why do you keep coming back to large format? Um, well, you know uh, the cliche answers, the uh, you know the speed of the process, things like that. That those yeah. definitely do lead into it. Um, I think what I really like, though, um, whether it's nature or if it's uh, portrait, I'm kind of a part of the the photograph. I'm not just hiding behind a camera. I can kind of move around, watch things happen, come in and out. So uh, it's funny. I'm talking about using a camera that's you know a dozen pounds or so. The same way street photographers will talk about their camera. They're there with the camera. I'm very much there with the camera, just kind of interacting. And it's uh, it's definitely a, a an all-in process. You're, you're, you're present. And it's certainly a conversation piece, isn't it, when you're out in the community? And oh, it definitely is. Yeah, you have to be – I think you have to be ready to uh, – explain things i mean hmm. i think i think a lot of people don't want are they're not going to ask for like a free workshop on something but they just want to know um i think the most common question i get with the eight by ten is uh am i shooting a movie which is always funny so <laughs> and i'll show them yeah it's hd right there look at the ground glass and they're, they're usually pretty happy with that yeah i was i was standing in the middle of norwich which is a city on the east coast of, of the uk uh, a few weeks ago and uh, with some friends and I set up set up my five four camera, and 
I could just see people walking, but no one came up to me and spoke to me, but they just kept giving me these weird, weird looks. <laughs> but I, one of the earliest projects I remember uh, seeing seeing that you were doing was your barbershop work. I don't know if that's still ongoing, but really, you know, the shots are on your website, aren't they? And mm-hmm. they're just fantastic. I, I love that stuff. You, you, I was having my hair cut one day and I took my SX-70 with me and it wasn't quite the same as setting up my large format camera, but I did get him to pose. So tell us about your barbershop uh, project, how you got into that, and what were the uh, um, how you approached the subjects, and what maybe what are some of the technical issues that you had to overcome? Oh, well, it was nothing but technical issues. Uh, I was still really learning the camera. This was kind of the first, yeah, this might be the first series of photographs that actually had uh, something common ground between it. That wasn't just me forcing myself to shoot. Uh, so this was at a time that I was, I was actually a traveling sales rep. So as my like day job, I was selling fabric to old ladies at quilt shops. That was my whole thing. <laughs> uh, it was great money for a college kid. Yeah. And um, so I was going to all these small towns in the Midwest and many of these small towns uh, have, have really nothing there. There's like a tavern, a post office and, uh, and a barbershop. And of those three, uh, the barbershop, uh, was most likely to have somebody that would hold still. Um, I still didn't have lighting. It was very dim in a lot of these places. Uh, many times I had to just kind of work my way in there, uh, tell them I was a student. I wanted to take some pictures. So that wasn't a complete lie. It was a bit of a white lie. But uh, most of these shots, I think, were a, you know half second, couple seconds worth of exposure. So people definitely had, they were they were coached but posed in a way that it looked like they were doing their job. And I was just trying to get a sense of, um, you know, who the people were in these, uh, in these barbershops, get a person, try to show their personality um, in each one of them. And in the end, I think I ended up photographing just shy of, oh, I don't know, 150 or so different barbershops. There was many more sheets put through. And I think there's, I don't know, there's probably like 50 or 60 on my Flickr page and, uh, the top ones on the website. I'm, I'm really glad that Andrew's mentioned this um, the, the series of photos because uh, as I'm as I'm sitting here, I've I've got your web page open. I was just sitting in the barber shop, uh, mm. just scrolling through the shots, and they they're wonderful. Um, there's a you 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 really feel involved in what's actually going on there. You 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 get the feel of the people that are in the scene and the you know, the the atmosphere of uh, these individual barbershops. And I think it's they're a well it's, it's more than a set, it's you know, it's a large piece of work. Um but there's a, a a question I have for you on on these. I mean sure. you've, you've already mentioned about the lighting was a was was a problem. Um and you've explained the how a lot of these are potentially two second exposures and so on. Um mm-hmm. Does, there's a, a there's a choice in many of these shots that have been made regarding your depth of field, and mm-hmm. uh, so there there are some which are um, that you know the, the background is sli- slightly uh, going out, um, so you've got something in crisp focus, and then you you've got a nice outer focus area behind them, mm-hmm. and um, and there are others where you have a, a much deeper uh, depth depth of field, and yes, and just wondering was that a decision because of the available light or was that a conscious decision to take photographs in whichever way that you took those photos? 
Um, a lot of the times, uh, the depth of field difference you're seeing, it's funny because I think back and I, I don't remember uh, having those issues. It was really, uh, I think the only choice I was making, honestly, because I, I couldn't really understand much else about the process, uh, was was just lens choice. So a lot of times, if you see more depth of field, it's because I was forced to use my super wide which is a 121 millimeter. And that just gives you naturally more depth of field. That lens doesn't even cover eight by 10 until you're most of the way stopped down, like F22 or 32, somewhere in there. So that's that's probably the difference that you're seeing. Um, when I could, I would use uh, a 210, which was 5.6, or uh, there was a very rare occasion where I was using uh, the 14 inch uh, Artar, which was like a three a three fifty five f nine ish, so that's uh that's probably the difference that's that's showing up there. And now now that I'm looking back at it, I know exactly what lenses they were, and it was all just to how much stuff I could fit because a lot of these places were very very small. I tell you the shot I like mainly because you've you've um, done clip well. You appear to have done clever things with maybe swing front swing i'm i'm not really sure the one with the bear okay so oh geez the one in finley yes i know exactly yeah, what you're talking so you've about got yep. the, the right hand side of the bear is kind of a bit fuzzy uh, out of focus then you've got the other the other area which would not in a conventional camera would be in the same plane of focus as the guy on the barber chair but of course mm -hmm. you've got that this is the joy of large format photography and folks like if you're listening to this pause it and go and look at this photograph with the bear because Bang slap in the middle, you've got a gentleman and the barber, which is 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 sharp. And in the same, what you would think traditionally would be the same plane of focus. So to the, the guy in the chair to his left, near the alcove wall, it's mm -hmm. quite diffused and out of focus. Yeah, it's pretty and much gone. Yeah. Coming back um to the bear, it's uh it's um diffused as well. So can you remember what you did there? <laughs> yes, that was my uh, that was my super wide lens. I yeah. sent a, I sent you guys the link in the hangout. Okay. Um, yes, uh, obscene amounts of swing. So this is uh, what I will tell everybody who's just getting started with large format to never do. Yeah, uh, <laughs> do it, do it. It's great fun. Yeah. Just yeah. The swing. So once, well, yeah, once you learn. So when I teach folks large format now, this is the big thing. Uh, small movements go a very, very long way. Uh, <laughs> this was just, yeah, I, I dialed it up to 11. I, I took that swing as much as it could. And I think it, yeah, that's my, that's my second widest lens. So yeah, it got kind of, uh, got kind of weird. And I'm pretty sure the swing here was really to keep my exposure where I needed it to. And, um, I was having fun with the the bear. One of the running jokes is a lot of the Michigan and Ohio barbershops just have this really, really uh, hilariously uh, bad, but sometimes good taxidermy uh, in there. So there's always a bear. There's always a, you know, one of those electronic uh, bass, like singing bass. This one had a coyote <laughs> and a quail and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, there's one, was, there's one next to it with a deer or something, isn't there, as well on top of the on yes. top of the cupboard. That one, uh, that one was uh, in Michigan. A lot of the Michigan ones are great. You know you're in the right place to take photographs in Michigan when you see a sign at the exit that says bear feed. <laughs> well, so with this bear picture and just talking about the, uh, the technique again, which, which lens did you, say, did you say that was, Matt? Can you remember? Uh, yeah, was, uh, well, I can't remember, but thankfully uh, me from nine years ago took notes. Uh, so it was uh, my Fuji 210. Is that the F5.6? 
Yep. So there's there's two versions of it. This is like the really cheap one. I I've been known for using really really cheap lenses for a long time. I'm starting to get good ones, but uh, this one was like a lens I picked up for 150 or so dollars, and uh, it covers eight by ten, just barely. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because as you swing that boy around, you can you know d- you you start impacting on the coverage, don't you? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. It's uh, that lens doesn't usually cover. Um, at infinity until you stop it down. So fortunately okay. for the barbershops, I'm not shooting any time at infinity. I'm usually pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that helps, doesn't it? I have a 210 Schneider lens, which is 5.6, but uh, that just for my 4.5. But I do have the Fuji 90. Yeah, but that's F8, mm-hmm. which is a bit on the dim side, really, the F8. Those but, definitely are hard to focus on a 4.5 glass. Yeah, yeah. Do you so we we've we talked in one of the earlier shows about uh, and let, Simon's going to help me out here um, about lenses and coverage, and I, mm-hmm. I get lots of questions on the Facebook group. In fact, one just at the moment. In fact, it's not on the Facebook group. I'm dealing with her just on sort of private communication. She's saying, "I've I've, I've just ordered an Intrepid eight by ten, and um, I've seen this Schneider two forty lens that the seller says covers eight by ten and she's asking me advice and um you know it's it's a it's it's a it's a tough one but i think simon might have been johnny sissons on one of your shows that or it might have been carl i'm not sure pointed to some online resources about all different kinds of lenses Mm -hmm. and their and the coverage can you can you remember that I can't. Um, uh, I listen to your show. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. I, uh, I, rec- I record it, but I never like Johnny. Uh, neither of us actually listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can I can give you guys some resources for large format coverage. Um, the uh, the the go to place, the website l- hasn't really changed since about 1996, uh, but largeformatphotography.info. Uh, they have a uh, they have some spreadsheets about all lenses that cover different formats up to 11 by 14. It's a, it's a pretty good comprehensive list. Hmm. Okay. Large format photography dot info. Dot, dot info. That's the, uh, the old large format forum. It's a lot of curmudgeon uh, kind of folks on there, but there's a few folks that are helpful. Oh, I'll, I'll fit right in. Yeah. The, <laughs> uh, I will say that Schneider don't do it. Um, it's going to be limited coverage. Um, Unless it's unless it's like an Apo Serenar or like one of the Serenar ends, mm. you're gonna be uh, you're gonna be clipping corners real quick on that. Yeah, I don't think it was anything special. I, uh, I kind of I didn't wholeheartedly endorse it, it mainly because I didn't know, but I said to seek further advice. So I'll, I'll point her in that direction and also um, pass on your recommendation. Uh, yes. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I was. Uh, if you if you just want to finish off your, your point, then I'll I'll ask you another question. No, I oh, think that, that pretty well. I'd finish, but Matt, did you finish? Oh, Fuji two fifty, the six point seven. It's the best. Uh, it's the best short eight by ten lens for the money. It's usually a dollar a millimeter when you buy it, and uh, I still use one. It's great. Fuji two fifty. What? Sorry. Two fifty. F six point seven. F six point seven. Okay. What? Brilliant. Um, the, the the question I've got is you just you just made the point there about um, uh, Andrew's quite slow lens, uh, and you and you said that it's uh, uh, difficult to focus on four by five. 
I think it was, mm-hmm. an, was it an F8 lens, Andrew? Mm, yeah, yeah. So, so the question I've got there is: um, so is is a, a lens of that uh, that f stop? If it, if it was one that was um, scaled up to be able to do eight by ten, is it easier to focus a, an f8 lens on eight by ten than it would be? Yes, yes, it is. That's a that's a great question. Um, a lot of times, I'm not scared of a lens that might be nine even 11 sometimes um, on there. The longest lens I have is a, it's a Nikkor triple convertible. And I think at its longest, it's an F16 and it's still super bright. So it's, uh, it really all depends on how big a surface you're viewing that thing on. But I, from what I've found when I've worked with four by five, F8 is very, very dim mm. uh, a lot of times uh, to view. But with those wide angles, it's, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. The F8s have great coverage, but are hard to focus. Whereas there's there's wider lenses that are 4.5, 5.6, but they actually give you a brighter viewing, but they give you less actual coverage. So you have to stop down further. There's a trade-off. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, it's 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 it sounds counterintuitive as well. Because I'm, yes. I'm, I'm there thinking, well, F8 is F8, and that's dropping mm. the same amount of light. But then again, though, when I mean, I've got a um, a, a woolen sack lens here, and it's my my wide angle lens. It's a 90 mil. It's for four by five, and it's mm-hmm. um, was it a 6.8 lens, and it is you know certainly compared to my other two lenses, which are both 4.5s, which are basically they're, they're press camera lenses and uh you know they're much easier to focus and and i, and I put this 6.8 lens on five by four and i can the, the central part of, the, of my um glass screen is reasonably visible um but i i can hardly see anything in the edges to the point where i'm there thinking well, is it even going to cover the edges but it, it does it does work and i don't that's, i mean that's another thing i'm probably going into a slightly different tangent now but um i'm thinking well how how could i get even coverage on my film where i've got brightness in the center of my glass screen and i've got what appears to be very heavy vignetting uh, around the edges yet when i actually take the photograph it seems to work across the frame does that make sense Oh yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Um, a lot of times with your ground glass, um, unless you're using a Fresnel, which is uh, kind of further heightening uh, that uh, that defect, not defect of the lens, it's just how your image circle works. You're always getting the best part in the center. It's always the brightest part. And that fall off just happens so, so quickly. Um, once you go to working aperture, you can kind of get a more even uh, feeling of what the lens is going to do. But oftentimes, it's impossible to view unless you're in the studio where you have it perfectly blacked out. Ah, yeah, and you hit the nail. That that makes more sense to me now because when you you look at lenses, uh, and I'm, I'm talking now with you know, 35 millimeter lenses, uh, you'll quite often you would have vignetting uh, at the wider apertures, and as you stop down, mm-hmm. the vignetting goes away. So that's basically what what we're seeing there. So as you say, you got the. How you're actually focusing is wide open. That's not necessarily how you're going to be using it. Although obviously you can do if if that's the look you're trying to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you do, as you close that down, you get the true even effect of the of the light. Except yes. you can't see anything. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, with uh, I don't know where we want to go from here, but lens wise, uh, the the kit is. Uh, I'm really happy to say I haven't changed a single thing in my 8x10 kit. 
in uh, almost five years now. And I would strongly recommend anybody getting into large format, use whatever piece of gear you have, uh, use it until you're sick of it. You have to know the ins and outs before you start throwing a bunch of new things and changing a lens is, is a real drastic move. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that. Um, uh, because that's, that's a, a real, uh, problem that, um, I, I, I gave myself over the last few years with, uh, adapting old lenses to digital because that, that's pretty much, uh, what we do on the, the classic lenses podcast. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it, you get to the point where actually it's not, it's not so much when you were doing that, but when you actually then go over and, and start shooting film again and, and using 35 millimeter digital uh, film and, uh, and whatever you, I, I got so used to using uh, a digital camera that when I actually went out and used a, a, a conventional camera with film, I sort of forgot how to take photos again. And you, even though you know, the process is pretty much identical, it's not. There's something, there is something actually different about it. And it's, you, you, you've got to envisage uh, the look of the, of the finished photograph at the point of taking it. Whereas with digital, you know, you know you, there's so much you can do to a photograph in post-production post that you know, you've just basically just got to expose it how you want to and, and you can do anything you like with it, with it, with it after. Um, but I was, I was certainly finding that because I had so much choice uh, whether that be in lenses or, or with cameras or whatever, I've, I would hardly ever be shooting the same lens or camera um, consecutively. And and I think that really, and it's, it's I'm talking about the past tense now, but I think it's the, absolutely the, the current tense that, that absolutely holds me back when I'm mm -hmm. shooting film. But whereas, you know, with the, with the smaller formats at least, but when I do go on to large format, I, my lens selection um, is so much smaller um, I find it um, almost liberating uh, that I don't have to think about this lens or that lens or is there a certain kind of look I'm trying to achieve. It's a case of, well, that's what I've got. I've got one wide angle lens. I've got one normal lens and uh, I've got a longer lens somewhere, but I need to mount it. So I've really gone in two lenses I can actually use. And I find that it's, it just simplifies the whole process. Um, and I think it probably makes me more creative as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, my my le lens kit for the longest time, uh, about the first year I was started, was uh, was one lens uh, that turned quickly into two or three with uh, within the second year of shooting it. Yes, and, and now it's uh, now it's a long more, uh, a lot more. But it's yeah, it, it forces you to be creative, f seeing something in uh, in one look, and really knowing that angle of view. Once you have that angle of view down, uh, it's just another. Uh, just, yeah, you're putting on a different look. So if I, I don't do any teaching of photography, and I, I know you, you do a little bit, Matt. Maybe you can talk about that in a second. But, sure. I mean, if there's one takeaway that I would, if I'm giving it anybody any advice, is to try and keep it simple. And, and, and I mean from the kit point of view, and I fully endorse what you said about, you know, one lens and work at it for a while, but through from the materials you're using, the the um, the film and the developer and the mm -hmm. lens, play with that for a long time and get to know it. Is that just me being old and curmudgeonly, or is that is that not good good advice? No, that's perfect advice. Um, so actually, uh, teaching is is about half of what I do now at uh, at Midwest Photo. So I, I'm their instructor for a lot of digital classes. Okay, I, I handle entry level. Uh, 
video workshops, uh, Darkroom, and I'm mm -hmm. doing a large format one this summer. But it's the, that takeaway permeates all the way throughout. Um, when it comes to film, the one camera, one lens, one film is a really great way to learn. Uh, many people, myself included, are super tempted to do the whole film of the week kind of thing. Mm. Try, try a new emulsion, try a new paper, try a new this. Uh, if you do that, you're just starting from square one every single time. You're not uh, you're not really getting much out of it. If you get lucky, that's great, but that's not giving you a feel for what you're doing and what the film's doing. And of course, if you're if you're on social media a lot, you'll see you'll look on your phone and someone will share a picture, and there'll be comments like great tonality or what's that film and you you can see people kind of think oh i've got to go and get that film now but yes. look, you're viewing it on a on a handheld device let's <laughs> make a print and let's see something here you know mm -hmm. so i totally agree and i don't want to be i don't want to be negative because these people are really enthusiastic you know and that's great absolutely great but sometimes i just want to say look just this i'm you're viewing this on a screen stop hopping around from one thing to another no, I, I very much agree with that sentiment. Um, I think when I I used to kind of preach it and not practice it, and I think that was a few years back when I was looking back at some photos I'd taken, and somebody was asking me, hey, what film was that? And I'm like, I, I honestly don't know. I've used the same two Ilford emulsions for so long, and I'm so used to getting them both to look like one another that I, I really can't tell you which one Please take was please taken say, with please say fp4 and hp5 absolutely that, yes, that's the only stuff i, I can afford yeah. yeah me too <laughs> occasionally i'll throw in a bit of foma pan 100 because i'm cheap you know well, that film is so different here. it is cheap there it's uh i i just haven't gotten mm. if i'm doing portraits i like foma yeah i I really can't control it the way I like to for landscape, the same way I can control all the Ilford emulsions. It's so different. Well, okay, so what are your tips for when you talk mm. about controlling it? Now, are you talking about controlling you know, a, a wide subject brightness range? You know, and, and what, what's your sort of when you're out in the wilds, mm -hmm. talk us through your, uh, your, your process, uh, your metering techniques. The, the you know are you sort of following zone system six seven stop expansion of development contraction of development all that sort of stuff so, and if you get too if you get too complicated we'll stop you and ask pull me back something, pull you back yes <laughs> all right well i'm doing a terrible job if i if i can't do it simply uh we're testing no, your it, skills as a teacher here you see all right yes yeah. uh i guess what I'm using a very, very dumbed down version of the zone system. Yeah. Um, many of the, the complex factors that come in when I'm shooting large format are that I'm making life harder uh, by using a, a staining developer, Pyro. Um, what that eventually does to my film is I lose uh, about a stop of film speed on most traditional films. Um, but what that gives me is uh, free reign in the highlights. So. Uh, I'm going into a lot of my metering knowing that I'm not going to blow a highlight. I can't tell you the last time I did. Um, so really my biggest thing when I'm metering is I'm finding my shadows. I'm placing them somewhere. Uh, on, if it's a standard contrast range, I'll probably place it on three. If it's a, if it's a higher range and I really want to make sure I get it, I might place that on four. So what do you, what do, when you're talking about standard contrast ranges, here's a subject so, Depending on who you talk to, people will say all sorts. John Blakemore, UK, mm -hmm. uh, a UK uh, photographer and printer, 
uses exclusively FP4 and ID11 OnePlus One for eight eight minutes. And he talks about, for him, if it's four, maybe five stops, then that's absolutely fine with his standard uh, de- development. He knows he can cope with that. But yes. if it gets if it gets a, above that, then he's maybe compressing the you know he's shortening the development pulling, time, pulling which, it back. Yep. Which you don't have to do with Pyro, I don't think. But so when you say what 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 do, what do you think a normal? Uh, let's talk a little bit about subject brightness range and how sure. and how that ends up on a print from reality to a print. Yeah, well, they're they're very different, and uh, your ability to envision it can really help. But uh, a standard range for me, uh, I would say the the classic five stops. So um, if it, if it's got yeah those four to five stops, really four between your your shadow that you want information and your and your highlights that you still want information, that's a that's a good standard scene. Uh, sometimes it's really dreary and crappy, and I have to expand that a little bit. So that's if you poke around with the spot meter and you see that you only have two and a half, maybe three stops of difference in light, then you want to take a note of that. I use a little sticker system. They're like tag sale stickers. Uh, one's greens for, I think, greens for expansion, oranges for regular, and reds for contract. I can't even remember anymore. Mm. It's been so long. But usually I'll put a little sticker on the film holder, and yeah. all, the st- all the stickers that line up, I'll load those into a box. That's a really uh, good idea. And then just uh, batch those films throughout the same processing time. So as far as processing goes, I have a standard time. Your expanded processing time is where you're uh, you're using your your development stage to uh, pump that contrast a little bit more. You've uh, you've exposed normally, but now you're uh, extending your development time to give you a little bit more contrast in those areas that you didn't. And then pyro you don't really need to do it as much uh but your traditional developers your solvent type developers you can use uh, uh contracted development or an n minus one yeah so, so so there's a number of things that you've said there which i need to quiz you on a little bit more sure um, one of them the last thing you said there was solvent type developers but just hold that thought a moment mm-hmm. um, the other thing you have been talking about pyro and um, i know there are several different pyro versions out there will yes um, pr- which one do you use i use uh, i've used it almost exclusively uh, pyro hd for the last 8 years or so mm-hmm. i played around with another one but I, I made my way back to pyro hd it's a uh, it's a catacol based uh, pyro developer there's a few versions you can get uh, over in europe and the uk that are a little bit safer uh, then traditional Pyro HD, I believe uh, Wolfgang Morsch sells yep. uh, some Tan- good developers. Tanol, I think is called. Yes, yes, he has the Tanol. But he's just um, announced. He's just announced that you shouldn't use it with HP five, which is a real bummer. Hmm, that's interesting. He's got a note on his news site. I've used PMK Pyro, which I think is is that the Gordon Hutchings. He was a sort of yes, um, that's PMK. Mm-hmm. Yes, and when I watch some YouTube videos, there's a a cool guy with a beard doing, uh, and he's he's agitating this baby like his arms are going to drop off, and the, and <laughs> and, I've, and I and he said it's essential you do that with PMK Pyro, and I did it, and I'm exhausted at the end of it. It's a proper workout. <laughs> so I don't know. Do, have you are you familiar with with the PMK version? Um. So way back when on uh, on early early FPP, um, the uh, former co-host uh, Dwayne he used uh, PMK a little bit, so we would have chats uh, back and forth about using that. But I made my way to Pyro HD because it was the only one I could I could buy ready to ready to go. And now I just mix it myself. So. Okay. Oh, do you? Yes. Mm. 
Right, okay. Isn't that a bit nasty? Uh, well, I mean, you just... So, yes, I would say treat the chemicals with respect and they'll respect you back. <laughs> Gloves okay. and ventilation, always. But with, with So you've you talked a little bit about placing shadows. Now, I was trying oh, yes. to explain this to my co-host the other day. <laughs> uh, do, you want, do you want to just talk to us a little bit about what we'd because it all comes into this people use these phrases like metering for the shadows now i'm sure they don't always know uh, with the best will in the world what that means oh sure you can point your meter at a shadow and just read that off but that's not metering for shadows not in the sort of zone system sense is it maybe could you just explain to our yeah let's unpack that place unpack it yes that's it yeah so i use a dedicated spot meter so a spot meter is a reflected light meter you know you can take an incident metering which is light as it falls on your meter and then reflected reading which is kind of uh how your camera meters a lot of time so your spot meter is anywhere from one degree to five degrees so just a tight angle of view you're trying to get just the reflected light off of that small area and like any light meter it's giving you a reading uh, based on that uh, that zone five or that middle gray kind of your averaged exposure it's what all of our camera systems are kind of uh, are biasing your exposure towards so my spot meter i'll take a, a measurement off of those shadows and when I say placement, what I'm really doing is I'm looking at that uh, what it's reading, and I'm telling, and I, I know the shadows that I want detail in should be uh, one to two stops underexposed from where the meter is telling me. So I have a little scale. It's just a tiny little maybe inch-long thing that has little different zones labeled on it, uh, one through ten. And then I'll just hold that up to my meter, and then I know that if I want detail in my shadows, my f-stop needs to be two stops under wherever the uh, the meter is telling me on that. Yeah, so that would be what Ansel Adams would talk about as zone three. Mm-hmm. And some photographers, I, I don't know whether it might be Bruce Barnbaum. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm sure I, I listened to a YouTube video and he said he was extolling the virtues of placing everything on zone four. Four, but, yep. Which gives you a bit more, I suppose, workable workable density in your shadows but then you're then you're pushing things up the scale aren't you because what's the knock-on effect there you've got this four or five stops that you were talking about so mm-hmm. if if you've play if you've placed your shadow two stops less than average mm-hmm. that gives you um three stops above average uh and if you then but if you place it one stop below average you're pushing it up to four so your highlights are under threat possibly for um, burning out, I guess. Oh, definitely. And it was only until recently that I had realized just how lazy my metering regimen had become um, (laughs) when I was shooting and and developing in not pyro. So I will say getting, getting, uh, getting used to your workflow and what film and developer and paper and everything you use um, will, will kind of make you uh, back to square one. Once you start using, other other films and other developers, but um, I, the the kit that I always use is some form of Ilford, always in my camera, usually FP4, uh, always using Pyro, knowing how I'm rating it and developing it, and that that usually works for me. But really, whatever you're using when you're getting started, just use a lot of it. Don't just buy, you know, in large format, uh, a box of ten sheets isn't going to tell you anything. It'll barely tell you if you have light leaks. So buy a lot of it and and really really get to know it. And, and of course, uh, most folks listening to film podcasts are scanning and not printing. And, and yes. o- often you need to develop a different regimen for 
if you're scanning, if your workflow is mainly scanning, then 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 printing. I would yes. think. I would think. No, it, it definitely is. Yeah, uh, a lot of times I've found the negatives that don't print as well. So generally thinner negatives, so ones that don't have as much density and might print with a, a higher than not contrast grade. Um, those will scan a little bit better than the thicker negatives. Uh, so the maybe the ones that have a little more density on them, those tend to print a little bit better. I tell folks out there, if you're if you're wondering about you know what speed to rate films at and and things like that, what I tend to say to folks is, look, it, you shoot if you if you've got a new film, shoot, by all means shoot it at box speed, develop yes. develop it at um, what the manufacturer says, and then and then l- either scan it or try and make a print of it. If you've got no if if you've got no shadow detail where you were expecting to have some shadow detail, or your shadows are just blank. Then rate rate that film at half its speed. Try that. Uh, if your highlights are just constantly with no detail in, change your developing time and cut it by twenty percent or something like that. And uh, and and conversely, if you're uh, you know if you if you're not getting unlikely, but if you're not getting the kind of highlights you want, then you can stretch your your time. So, but you only know that, don't you, Matt? If you're just working with something for a while. Yes, and and I really like the way you put it because that tricks people into uh, exposing for shadows and developing for highlights. I might steal that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that that's that's absolutely right. When you when you know something for long enough, you you should be able to not just uh, not just get good results with it, but but manipulate it to a certain degree. So when I say I really can't, sometimes I just can't tell the difference between my FP four and the HP five. Um, I think some of it is also the larger format. So, you know, an eight by 10 sheet of film has more surface area to communicate those values, you know, those shadows to highlights. And when you, when you massage that enough in the dark room or with scanning or with developing, you, uh, you can really start to get the same look, uh, going throughout them. But isn't your staining developer, cause you haven't, so that's folks out there, a pyro based developer generally speaking we would mm-hmm. refer to them as staining developers so the stain is an integral part of the process and it fills in i'm, I'm struggling there it, fill, okay. fill, it fills in the fills in the the grainy bits doesn't it with color and even yes. things out yes so uh, that right? didn't uh you got it. didn't sound you got it so far no 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 it's it's good is simon alive i just wanted to make sure that he's <laughs> yeah, he's got he's got to sleep I'm, I'm okay I, I i do have two questions that I, i'm going to be dragging dragging you back but um let's, no, that's let's, great. Finish, that's great. let's finish the uh the the, the, the staining bit <laughs> yes so a staining developer is a type of developer which it's very uh it's often referred to as a surface uh, type developer. So it really doesn't get uh, too deep into the mul- into the emulsion. But so, as, so as you're... Uh, sorry, it, this is important because it links to what you said earlier, solvent and surface acting. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and Pyro is a surface acting developer. Yes, it's, it sure is. So when your film develops, uh, you know, what you're doing is reducing silver halides to silver metal. So the, the parts that got exposed are going to get clumpy and dark, which is what you want. That's your density forming. Yeah. And um, what pyro does is as that density starts forming, this stain starts kind of attaching to it. It has to happen in a really, really alkali environment. And then that, uh, that stain just starts latching onto it. And the stain is proportional 
to the density that's forming. So more density, more stain. What that is essentially does is it gives you a really, uh, if you remove the stain, it's a very, very thin, unusable negative. But what the stain does is it kind of fills in those gaps and it masks the grain and kind of gives you a, a much longer, uh, smoother scale uh, to run with at the expense of pyrostain pyro developers are super nasty and I, I really don't recommend them for just starting out. When I've used, I've used a few pyro um, developers, mainly for, it's a kind of silver bullet thing, really, I think. Mm -hmm. you know, and you kind of refer to that by saying, you know, I've got a bit lazy. If I stop using pyro, I realize, I've, you know, you've almost got to think a bit more, haven't you, really? Yes. Um, yeah. But my negatives always appeared super, super thin. Uh, but I, I seem to remember that they printed beautifully. But is it normal for them to appear appears thin when you compared with my sort of normal id11 uh, negs yes they will appear well it it also depends uh, a lot of time uh if you cut that film speed in half that kind of gets you back to something looking a little bit more normal yeah. but but well, usually that, that would, i would yeah. normally do that anyway hp well hp5 i'm normally rating at 250 okay um, fp4 probably 80 but yeah, if you hold if you hold a negative that prints well with pyro up to a negative that's done with yeah just any other solvent developer, uh, it will look thin mm -hmm. until you print it, and then it's like oh my gosh, no, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So I know I can hear Simon <laughs> desperate ready, to come in, to, but just come. Hold, hold that thought, Simon, <laughs> because you, earlier on you mentioned solvent type developers. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned surface type developers. Yes. So, and I know some developers can be both. ID11, D76 can be both depending on how it's diluted. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe just for our listeners in your best school teachery way, explain uh -oh. the difference between those two. Um, well, yeah, uh, in the most basic terms, your solvent developer really just digs in there, gets deeper into the emulsion. They're yeah. typically a lot more concentrated aggressive and faster acting developers they will accentuate uh the best and the worst parts of your film namely grain and accutants and things like that so your sharpness all around the corners uh, and all around edges of the silver so um i prefer teaching with something like a solvent based developer like your d76 um or like an hc like a really low dilution hc 110 uh just because kodak's easy to get around here and mm -hmm. it, it kind of never fails that's what i learned on for probably the first oh geez a, the first lot of film that i went through especially in medium format getting into large format it's uh, it's consistent uh it's gritty and it uh, it tends to work <laughs> yeah and but something like d76 if you dilute mm -hmm. it down does it then become it can have it can have a slightly uh, I would call it more of a like a compensating kind of effect. So right. uh, you know you you get a a dilution like one to three. So now you're using it one shot. You're adding more water into it, which yep. oxidizes it faster. So mm -hmm. it's pretty much done. It's no longer a stock solution. And what it's going to do is it's going to delay that overall development time. It's going to spend. You know you're going to have to give it more time to to develop out those uh, those mid-tones and shadows, and you might not have to agitate it um, as much, but uh, you definitely still want to, or else you're start, going to start to get weird uh, effects happening in your highlights. It's, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a massive topic, this sort of compensating. Oh, when, we oh, use, yeah. when we use the word compensating developers, what we're talking about is something which is helping you control that wide tonal range, so it's helping you to control those highlights 
Uh, and, and typically diluting a developer down will help you do that. Using a softer working developer will help you do that. Using a pyro developer will help you do that. But also mm-hmm. a lot of people are really into stand development, Matt. And sometimes yes. sometimes I say, why are you using stand? Because it, it, it seems to get used as a sort of magic bullet for everything. But it's it's really meant for compensating, uh, you know, for, for, for dealing with as acting as a compensating developer, isn't, isn't it? Yes, uh, I always tell folks the stand developer is the the Ron Popeil method, you know, set it and forget it uh, type method with uh, with developing. So the the hope there is you have a, a developer that's so diluted that uh, you just leave it there. And uh, the hope in a lot of compensating developers is that uh, the very small amount of developing action that occurs um, it exhausts. Um, before it finishes in the highlights and higher midtones, and just kind of keeps working on those shadow areas, yeah. and uh, uh, the probably the the holy grail for that, of course, is the uh, uh, rodenol, and then caffeinol, and other other enols uh, from there. <laughs> right, I'm going to stop and let Simon say something. <laughs> well, I, well uh, I was I was I was quite happy just sitting here listening listening to the grown ups. Um, <laughs> um, I want to. Uh, I mean, there, there were so many uh, things from a, a a noob perspective, which is what I have. Um, which a lot of the things that you've been talking there, as, as, as best as you you could do, they're they're still quite uh, above my pay grade. But there, but it, this is one of those things. I mean, I, I've. I remember when I started listening to other podcasts, uh, such as like the Sunday 16 or uh, homemade camera podcast and so on. Um, the guys would be talking about stuff that I, I didn't really know what was going on. Um, but I was, I thought, well, this is interesting. And, uh, and what I find, and I think a lot of other people do that you can sort of learn by osmosis sometimes that if you expose yourself to people talking about these things, then eventually some of it starts to click and it goes in and that, that certainly works with myself. Um, but I want to go back, uh, back in the uh, dawn of time when we were t- talking about the uh, exposures and, and zone system, and I, and I, I really yes. don't want to go too deep into this because it's a, it's a huge topic. But it's it's something that, d- despite uh, Andrew, uh, I met up with Andrew a couple of weeks ago, and he had a spot meter and he pointed at things and he pressed buttons with his with a spot meter and they said this 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 and this, and I sort of half got mm-hmm. what he said, but I I still didn't quite get there. I could uh, see your eyes glazing over. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll, I will get there. I do. I do want to learn. Um, but the one of the things that's about using a spot meter. Um, I just want to just check my understanding. Uh, I'm, sure. I'm going in, in baby steps here. Um, whatever you're pointing your spot meter at, would I be mm-hmm. right in thinking that's going to give you zone five? Is that is that a fair way of of, of talking? Whatever, wherever it's pointed. It's mm-hmm. apart from in the extreme highlights and the extreme shadows, but is 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 that effectively zone five? And then and then, well, actually no. Let's just leave it to that question. Yeah. So your your meter, whenever you're taking a reading on the meter, uh, you're never telling it. Um, you're never directing it uh, around other than, hey, measure the light. So um, they're really simplistic devices we're using out in the field. Um, even even our modern digital cameras are really good cameras, really terrible everything else. So your meter at its simplest terms is just taking an average reading. Um, even the spot meter, even the most sophisticated ones, 
they're telling you what that light reading is at that zone five, kind of that 18% gray. It's taking the light it's seeing and it's trying to knock that down to an average amount of gray. So if you point that at a very, very, very bright highlight, you want to make sure that that highlight, well, one, isn't contaminated by, you know, other uh, other areas. So like don't point it at the sun. You're never going to try to get detail on just the sun. Uh, but point it at something that you want detail. And when you get that meter reading, uh, you're going to look at that and say, well, if I take a picture at that now, everything else is going to be way too dark. But by placing that in an area that is uh, of a higher value, so on the zone system scale, that's that's your 0 to 10 or 1 to 10, whatever you might, uh, that's going to be somewhere higher than zone 5, preferably 7 or 8, somewhere up there. Okay, that's that that make that does make sense to me. I'm, that's uh, exactly what I told you. Yeah, but Matt, Matt does it better. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so Simon, what he's saying is, if you if you if you pointed that you've got a, a a white fence with some sunlight on it, and it's got some, uh, and you can see the sort of texture in the paint with your eye, you know it's there. You don't want that to record as blank paper white. You want some detail there, so you can put your spot meter onto it. And that gives you your average reading, so zone five. But then you want to add some exposure to your, uh, mm-hmm. you want to increase it by two or maybe three stops. So if it's, you know, 5.6, make it uh, whatever that is, four, uh, or, you know, add yeah. three stops. I my brain's gone. <laughs> uh, and, it, and conversely, if you're pointing at a, at a shadow area where you know there's detail or you want still to see detail, then you reduce your exposure by one to two stops say two stops yeah that's 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 making sense to me and then you <laughs> and then the developing bit comes in for in the in the highlight side of things so if you if you did that and you then developed your film um and you found that despite your best efforts your white picket fence had no detail then go and shoot it again but cut your development <laughs> time by 20 or 30 percent hey simon i have a really uh, interesting question for you does your light meter give you a way to visualize where it's uh plotting does it have a little f-stop scale on it or does it just give you a number um i've I've got i've got a a couple one one just gives me a number and another one is uh uh, it's 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 almost like a match needle uh, okay Um, I found for me, it really didn't start to click until somebody handed me a meter where you can actually, one of the old Sekonics where you can plot it along and it has a little f-stop scale at the bottom. Once I was able to visualize where the meter was taking a reading and then saying, no, 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 I want it up or I want it down from here. That's when the zone system really started to click for me. It was all about visualization. When it's just a number, it's, it becomes math. When it's on this scale, I can say, oh, right here, that's where I want it. I mean, you mean like a dial after after you've taken your reading, you mean, or is it, or, or something else? Um, no, it's a, so I use a, a Sekonic L778. So any of the Sekonic 500 series and up, they have like a little, uh, an LCD readout screen, but on it is printed out a little f-stop scale. So F, F2 all the way up to F64. Right. And when you take a measurement, it kind of plots along there. So then yeah. I just have this little chip and this, I put the chip along and it just has, it's the same uh, measurements, but it's five stops across. So then I just lay that on there and I can say, oh, okay, there's my zone seven, there's my zone three mm-hmm. or four. And then I make my exposure. Right. On some of the um, handheld meters, not spot meters, but my Gosson Luna 6 3S, which is a sort of UK variation to probably one of the, 
Mike uh, Rasso's favourite. They come in different names, don't they? Anyway, yes. my, my one has a little zone system scale around it, so you can move, you can... It's got the 10 points on it, and you can place them, turn the little dial around and place them where you want and then read off your reading, which is really good, but it's not a spot meter. Although it does have a sort of semi-spot attachment. I can go down to maybe 10 degrees, I think, or 5 degrees. I'm not sure now. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And I, I want to go back now to on the, the developing side of things. And there's a, there's a term that keeps getting used, and I and I'm, I have a sneaky feeling it's a, it's a, it's possibly a misleading term, um, and it's when we're talking about density and yes. thin negatives and the thick negatives. And now, mm. to my to my mind, that means that the actual negative itself is physically thicker or thinner. Oh. That's what that mm -hmm. means to me because I've I've picked up some some film is thinner and some film oh. is thicker, um, but that that's not what it means, is it? It's that's a really wow. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Um, yes. So welcome to my when, world. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I, I love it. It's uh, it's it's always good to hear it. Um, a thicker negative uh, when when you hear me and uh, Andrew talking about it is just referring to uh, the amount of density. So a thick negative uh, or you might hear them uh, called bulletproof negatives um, are negatives where there's so much silver, uh, me metallic silver in there that light is having a hard time getting through. So if you hold it up to the light, um, you're gonna have much less light transmitted through it than if you had a thinner negative or one that was uh, more see-through, more transparent. So really the, the result of a combination of underexposure and underdevelopment rather than uh, physical um, dimension on there. Right, now that, that, that makes a huge amount of sense too, and it, and, it, and it could mean that I'm underexposing a lot of my photos because when I'm, so I, I don't print, so it's something that that's coming. Um, so I'm, I'm scanning and I'm really struggling with scans because the, the photos are coming through quite, quite gray um, unless I, I, I put a really, really strong light behind them. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm thinking I'm putting way too much light through this. It, it, I shouldn't have to do that. So that would, that indicates um, underexposure then potentially. Well, I think if you're looking at your shadow areas, Simon, um, are they are they clear? Can you just see straight through them? Um, that that's underexposure. No, I'm not getting. I'm, I'm still having a reasonable amount of shadow detail. Well, so. that's that's not underexposure. Okay. Yeah, so it might be under development at that point. So uh, another mantra. I don't know if Andrew and I have mentioned this one yet, but uh, exposure controls density. And development controls contrast. Mm -hmm. That's another this way of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, or, or shadows and highlights. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, you've you've mentioned stand development. I mean, that's that's what I have been doing uh, stand development until very recently, and I've I've just started to do uh, uh, because I'm I, I started off with uh, Rodinol, um, and now I'm well, I'm still with Rodinol, uh, but I've I've I'm now starting to do uh, one to twenty five. Uh, so I'm doing proper okay. developing now. Yeah, that's what I used for a time. I'm, I still have some of it in the dark room, and I mainly use it for X-ray development, diluted down one to a hundred. But I, um, I got I used to get great results with one to twenty-five for six, seven, eight minutes, whatever it was. I forget now. Yeah. And your agitation regime is is crucial as well, Simon. You know, and you know some films don't take too kindly to excessive agitation. You know. And, uh, 
So you've got to work on your agitation regime. And, and what, what are your thoughts on agitation, Matt? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I maybe I think I'm, I'm older school than uh, some folks. I, I still do tray development for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have open trays and I'm usually doing eight to 12 sheets at a time um, and just kind of going every, uh, it's pretty consistent agitation. So I'm probably once every 30 seconds on there. But you're talking, you're talking with your eight, eight, 10, um, eight, 10 sheets. Yep. Sheets, so yeah, in, in the, yeah. in the dark, that's my, that's my Zen. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I get to go in the dark um, and hang out. I'll usually listen to some bad eighties pop music and uh, just kind of zone out. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, so it brings us on, I suppose to, I mean, four or five negatives, you've got quite a lot of options for home developing. You've got the Patterson Mod 54 insert for the, not, uh, or sorry, the Mod 54 insert for the Patterson Liter tank. Mm -hmm. You've got the Stearman Press SP445, which is, yes. which is great. Uh, uh, but for 810, eight, you've got tanks and hangers, I think, you know, if you can find mm -hmm. them. You've uh, maybe got some Jobo type roll tube things, or you've got trays. What Stearman are working on a single sheet tray development system, aren't they? Daylight loading. Yes. Yeah. Um, eight by ten. There are reduced options, and my one thing where where I'm I'm not preaching what I or I'm not I'm not practicing what I preach here, but. If I were to start again, I think I would seriously do it all uh, on 4x5 just because there's so many more options now, so many more films, so many more lenses. Uh, once you go up to 8x10, you really you really have to want it at that point. Um, it, there's so, so few everything else options, and processing can become really, really tricky. Um, I've, uh, I've always had the hardest time setting up a darkroom space to how I, how I like it for that workflow on there. And that's that's been the biggest consideration whenever putting a darkroom space together is just making sure I can do uh, I can completely black it out and make sure I have uh, uh, adequate time to to develop multiple batches of film. So you work at Midwest Photo, which yes. is which is where 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 is Midwest oh. Photo? So in the in the little burb of Columbus, Ohio. Now we're the the largest camera store in in Ohio, and we're kind of the biggest one between Chicago and New York. So um, okay. we're we're, we're a destination for a lot of folks. Sadly, there's there's not many other big camera stores in Ohio, so a lot of folks drive to us, and uh, we actually have a rental darkroom now. Yes. Now, I, I was going to talk to you about that, and I know Simon's particularly interested because Simon was talking about setting up a community darkroom, weren't you, Simon? But I think you got a little bit yeah. phased, phased by it. Yeah, I, I pretty much realised that a community darkroom is not what I thought it was, and uh, it, it requires a, a, a lot more... Um, commitment in terms of time um, but what uh, it's actually worth just just mentioning what what we have done is and it launches tonight which will be uh, um, several several days uh, after people are going to actually hear this podcast uh, or before I should say so uh, well, every second Tuesday in Stoke-on-Trent a place called Tunstall um, we've got a film night and uh, we've it's in an existing um, studio uh, photography club called Six Towns uh, Photographic Club and they have a darkroom um, and it was 
you know, chronically underused, and uh, and I've been working with them to you know, see if we can um, get more people interested in it. And I think one of the issues that they've they've had is that they've always concentrated on saying, "Well, come along and uh, we'll show you how to print things." Well, yeah, I, I know you're not you're not you're not going to be a fan of what I'm going to say here, but the the world is uh, rather in, the interest in film photography is largely being driven by social media and sharing images. And uh, what they weren't able to do uh, was to digitise and how to show people how to actually get things onto onto a computer, and that's something that I that's the bit I do know how to do. Um, so we're going to combine uh, the skills that they've already got for for printing and uh, processing, and I'm going to help out with the um, the digitisation uh, process, if if you like, and uh, we're hoping that that's. Uh, hybrid workflow which is a horrible phrase for a lot of people uh, but that's what it is really um, that we can we can show people how to do that and and build that interest in, in film um, but the, the problem I've got in terms of large format is we, mm -hmm. we don't actually have a large format and uh, larger we can go up to six by seven and that's that's it and uh, and I, I've got a, a question for you so I've never actually seen a large format and larger um, oh, and we've uh, we've got spaces uh, like these little bays uh, we've got set up with a we've got a couple of like semi permanent enlargers there, and um, and these medium format ones fit into the space quite 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 well. So it's a um, tabletop uh, worktop level. Um, would a five by four enlarger actually fit into one of those spaces, or are they so large I'd need step ladders to 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 reach it from a from a normal countertop height? Um, I don't think they would be. There are some compact, well, relatively compact four or five enlargers. Uh, I learned on the Bessler series four by fives. Those are barely larger than the six by seven uh, versions. Uh, in our darkroom space, we did kind of push it. We put a giant uh, Bessler 45 VXL. But if you just do a 45M from Bessler uh, or in any of the Omega, the 45Ds, those are not too much larger. And you'd be surprised. Yeah, I, so I can back that up, Simon. When you come to Warboys and see my tiny little darkroom, I have two enlargers sitting side by side, and there's, they don't take up a dissimilar amount of space. I have a Miopta Magnifax 4, uh, which is a beautiful enlarger that takes me up to 6.9 if I use glass negative carriers, or 6.7 if I use inserts. And then sitting next to that with barely a bit of space in between them is a DeVere uh, 504 bench-mounted nice. bench, bench one from the 1970s. It's very 1970s looking with a, um, a sort of creamy coloured head with three dial-in um, dial filters. Now, the beauty of the DeVeres is that the, there's a guy down in the south coast. His name is John, and he works for Odyssey DeVere, who has been there since the 1800s. And he um, he still services them. They still have spares. I bought lenses from him. He, he will, if you can get your enlarger to him, they'll service it for you or, or for an extortionate amount, they come out to your house and do it. <laughs> and he is, and they do, they do digital enlargers now as well, but his name is John and you can find him on Odyssey Devere. He may well have secondhand uh, uh, five, four enlargers, but they are still serviceable in the UK quite how, I'm, I'm not sure how old he is, but I can't imagine he's a spring chicken, you know? But in terms of physical size, my guess is if you've got a decent medium format enlarger, you'll get something like a Devere um, uh, 504 in there easily enough. 
That's encouraging. It's just heavy. You'll need a couple of you to lift it. Uh, an eight by ten enlarger, on the other hand. So the guy um, who I bought my Devere from, who will be a guest on the podcast at some point, Steve Steve Segsby, who does a lot of um, oh Steve, what a great guy. Yeah, you interacted with Steve. Uh, yes, uh, several times on uh, on social media, and I, I yeah. think we've been we've been Flickr friends for a long, long time. Yeah, well, he's he's for he's now moved up to Yorkshire, where he's built his darkroom, and he's concentrating on platinum printing and 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 such like uh, but he lived near me for ages just down the road and so we meet up regularly and go shooting together and he, he's great and yeah. um but since he's moved up to yorkshire he's a bit further for me to go but steve um i bought my enlarger from him and because he'd bought an eight by ten floor standing with a a proper ilford uh dial in you know head with remote control and this thing is huge you know, I mean, it's properly massive. <laughs> They're unwieldy. Yes, they take up a whole room. Yeah, <laughs> I can believe it when I've seen when I saw it. Yeah. So yeah, but your 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 um, bench mounting um, enlarger, in, in if you can get yourself a Devere or something similar, um, it, it'll fit in there, Simon. No problem. Well, that's 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 good news. Uh, we don't we don't have the funds for one as as, as yet, uh, but uh, one one day uh, we we, we yeah, will. Yeah, I, I I paid. Well, I bought it off a mate, so I paid three hundred pounds with a one fifty lens, and uh, but I had to replace the. Fa- it's got a fan that um, uh, takes the heat away, which yeah. wasn't working. So the fan wasn't working. So I phoned up John at Odyssey Devere. He says, "Oh, I'll send you a fan. It'll cost you fifty quid." So I bought a new fan. And I had to take the old one out and solder the new one in. But, you know, that's the beauty of having the DeVere enlarger because they're still serviceable. Yeah, no, that, that'll be cool. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking, before we, we started, um, we were when we were uh, chatting just to set the, uh, the, the show up, um, Matt mentioned that he mixes his own chemicals. Yep. Uh-oh. Yes. And I think that that's uh, that's that's more than intriguing, especially for those those of us uh, on a on a very tight budget. If that's a way of actually doing things a little bit more cheaply, it is definitely the only reason I do it. Uh, it's very 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 economical. So I I did the numbers because somebody asked me on Twitter a long time ago, and mixing up my own PyroCat HD, it costs me. $47.50-some cents every two years, <laughs> and, and that will develop 2,000 sheets of film. <laughs> but you have lung cancer. <laughs> hopefully not. Uh, hopefully not. I've, I've got good ventilation and always wear gloves. Always wear gloves. Is it a, pa- it's a powder, though, isn't it? Um, is it? There's different types of pyro. I, I never really know. Is it pyro cat? Catch, catch in or something, and pyrogallol. Oh, yeah. Are they are they the same things or are they different sort of pyros? They're, they're different compounds, and yeah, you want to have good ventilation and maybe mm-hmm. a respirator on when you mix it because uh, the amount of uh, catechol you need to mix up a liter of that is enough to make uh, what is it? Uh, Ten thousand acres worth of pesticide. Ooh. Yeah. So yeah, you want to treat it with respect. That's the best thing you can do with any chemicals, especially wet plate. <laughs> So, so your, your your homemade pyro. What what what's how how do you go about doing that? Um, uh, I 
Well, the biggest thing I do is I, I source uh, a lot of my chemicals uh, here in the United States. The easiest way to do it is you can go to Photographer's Formulary. Mm. Um, but there's another great place out of uh, out of New York called Artcraft Chemicals. Um, you can find the components. They specialize in a lot of uh, ready for photographers uh, sort of things. Um, so you can just look up uh, if you go to pyrocathd.com. They have the uh, the mixing list. You can just copy and paste those into Artcraft and uh, kind of find everything together. And the bulk, some of the bulk supplies are like a lifetime supply, and others you'll need every time you mix uh, mix everything. But um, I really do think the only reason I'm, I'm into mixing it is because uh, my minor in school was chemistry, so I have that background and I, I have that uh, that fear in me <laughs> of a lot of chemicals. So. Uh, you definitely want to be careful. Read but, read the MSDS. <laughs> but Simon, if you want to start doing this, you can do what I've done in the past. And and I, again, it was off air. We were talking. There are some really, really nice film developers and indeed paper developers that you can't buy commercially anymore. But the published formulas are out there and they involve things like a bit of metal, a bit of hydroquinone, quinine, mm -hmm. quinine, quinone, whatever. Anyway, and... Uh, so things like D, Matt was talking about D23 off air, I think, and that, and that yes. you can't go and buy that, but that's a very soft working developer, which you can use in, 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 in several different ways. And Matt, you're starting to make that up, I think. Well, you can make up D76 equivalents. You can, the, the formulas are out there. Just a quick Google will find them. I've got books and books and books with them in the, mm -hmm. the um, Darkroom cookbook. Is it Steve Anshul? His, yep. you get a copy of that and, you can start with something really simple. You can start with caffeinol if you want to. You're not going to poison yourself uh, no. with that. Um, but make it, 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 it's a lot of fun. And you can open up all sorts of possibilities for, for rediscovering formulas that they were using, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Yes, just make sure to wear gloves. That's the biggest thing. Gloves and ventilation. Yeah. Just yeah. always have that. <laughs> so when, when you're doing your trade development, um, yes. In in whatever you, you you're doing, you're, you're you're wearing gloves to pick pick the uh, the sheets up to turn them and, and and so on. That's 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 normal, yeah. That's very standard. Uh, when you when you handle any sort, of, well, anytime I'm in the dark room, even if it's something I I know and uh, and trust, I will still use gloves in there. It's just good practice when you're demonstrating it to somebody else. They understand that. You know they're working with something they need to respect, and it usually works pretty well. Uh, I never want to to be uh, careless uh, about that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, I find that to be like a really a really important component in teaching photography. Just yeah, always gloves. I always have an apron on. Uh, sometimes if it's nasty stuff, I'll I'll have a I'll just have a little face mask or a respirator on. Um, so just the trouble keep is keeping a respirator on. You can't drink your red wine, can you? <laughs> You don't want to drink the stuff you're using for film developer. Don't worry. <laughs> so, Matt, two areas that I certainly would like to talk briefly about before you have to rush off to work. Sure. One is photo stock, and the oh, other, the yes. other which you mentioned was you're getting into color, color chemicals and or printing. I'm not sure, but those two areas. Oh, sure thing. So um, coming up around the corner, unfortunately, I won't be attending this year, but it's one of the coolest, uh, coolest events you can uh, you can go to in North America for large format photography. Uh, and that's Photostock. They can go to photostockfest.com to check it out. But it is the third weekend in June, June 20th through 23rd. And that's up 
up at the very, very tip top of, uh, of Michigan. So it's one of the northern Midwest states. Um, the uh, event host is a gentleman uh, named Bill Schwab. He has, he's been a photographer, a prolific photographer in the Detroit area for uh, many, many years. He now lives up there. And have you had him on the FPP or you maybe yes. I've just heard you interviewing him when you've yep. done your I've, outside I've, broadcast? I've interviewed him a few times for FPP and uh, mm. he just always puts on a good show. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to think some of the people I've met through Photostock have turned into, you know, uh, just everyday social media friends that I interact with, but uh, some of them have also just become these huge names in photography, especially out West. So some of Bill's friends, uh, one of them, Carrick Kuklis, he, uh, he regularly is showing stuff um, out at the Ansel Adams gallery in Yosemite. He just finished a, um, I believe it was a, uh, uh, he had a residency out there. So it's just really cool to see, like it's, it's definitely a very small, a relatively small event, but you have wor- world-class uh, photographers and some that still use large format. And there's, you know, uh, I hear, I hear hybrid shooting is a, a bad word. I hope not. Cause that's kind of how a lot of people get into it now, but uh, many of them there are hybrid shooters and it's, it's just great interaction. Cause it's not all large format, is it? No, no, there's, there's some folks. Um, I think the last few years, Bill's been playing around with drones and stuff there. So <laughs> There's there's a lot of uh, photographers that have been in academia that are there. Some that have been uh, living as you know, uh, fine art photographers, and just a mix of other hobbyists uh, along there. So it's a good, um, it's like a meeting of the minds. You know, you can just sit around. Um, they have kegs of uh, Oberon, so there's uh, so there's just you know beer, <laughs> beer on tap. You're just hanging out, talking with other photographers, sharing prints, going out and shooting. So it's a very very relaxing, fun weekend. And are you staying in local hotels or? Camp people, yes. cat folks camping, or what are they? What are they doing? All of the above. So yeah. that hotel fills out. Uh, let's see. So if it ends on June twenty third, the hotel for the next year will fill out by June twenty fifth, <laughs> and uh, then everybody else is camping or bringing something to to stay in. So there's a, a few nature preserves you can stay at. Sounds fabulous. Sounds fabulous. And is that where you got into wet plate type photography? Because you, you you're dabbling with that now as well. Um, I, hmm, me and me and wet plate just have a very troubled relationship. I, I really wanted to like it. I think that was about 2011 that I, I started messing around with it. And, uh, I don't know. I I think I, I think I like, I think I like readily made film. (laughs) (laughs) What about dry, what about dry plate? Cause they had, um, Kevin, what's his name? Jason Lane. Jason Lane. Oh, the J Lane photographic. Yeah. yeah, He was just on the, on the classic lenses podcast. Yes, and he does he does an amazing job with those dry plates. I, I've yet to try some out, but they're getting faster and just really, really consistent. Um, I uh, My buddy I share a darkroom space with, so not only does Midwest Photo have a darkroom, I have a darkroom space I work out of with uh, another fata- uh, fantastic photographer. His name is uh, Stephen Takis. He does this uh, giant brownie camera, so he'll do like in-camera direct positives, but he also shoots dry plates. That's one of his things, and uh, that's a really neat process. He's He's very, very good at it. Hmm. Yeah, okay. J- Jason Lane. We'll he'll be. I think we've got him penciled in for uh, coming on our show in uh, when was it June? Some sometime in June. Okay. Um, but, uh, J- yes, he he was on the uh, Classic Lenses podcast that we, and because he's he's got two claims to fame. I'm sure he's got more than that actually. But um, apart from the fact he he makes and sells his own dry plates, which is just fascinating in itself. But but that wasn't actually the reason why we got him onto the Classic Lenses podcast. But and and that's because he is a lens designer. Um, oh wow! And 
well, if it's that that show is well worth listening to if you just if you have any interest in it lenses. It blew my mind away. I didn't understand much of it, but it blew my mind. He's got lenses that are up on the space station or something. I think, isn't he? And yeah, he's, he's literally whoa. designed a lens that's going up into space. It might actually wow. be in space now. Um, and uh, but the the other side is he. Well, as you as you might imagine, with him being uh, making making dry plates, he's into his large format photography, and mm-hmm. and he's when he when he comes on with us, uh, we'll be talking uh, dry plate, but we'll also be talking uh, large format lenses in in as much detail <laughs> as you could ever imagine. In fact, I think um, when it comes to the time where uh, we know he's coming on, I think we'll open it up for questions mm. about specific lenses because he has. He either knows uh, specific lens designs or he has access to information about just about every lens that's ever been made um, in terms of its design. So he can he can explain why a lens has a, a particular property, why something's better for this than, than, than for that and, and so on. So I, th- I think we'll uh, open things up and get as many questions in for, for, for Jason for when he comes on because boy, does he know his stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I look forward to that, and I, I suspect I'm just going to be sitting there listening with my feet <laughs> on the table and a cup of coffee or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm going to learn loads. Yeah, we can we can do it in two halves. You can you can do the the dry plate, and I'll I'll do the lens bit, and uh, we'll okay. <laughs> split the split the show that way. So, Matt, what's the what's the deal with color? Um, I don't know. I'm I I think I've caught the bug. I took some color film with me on a. Uh, on a trip last fall with a, with a buddy of mine. He's a sheet, uh, sheet film, presumably. We're sheet, talking yes. Yes. I took sheet. some, uh, hang on. I'm gonna uh, say it. Hang on. Sheets. Oh, Is perfect. That right? That's perfect. <laughs> yes. The sound effects, they're always playing in the back of my head. Thanks, Mike Rosso. Um, I took some Portra and some Velvia with me to, uh, to Africa. And I, wow. I discovered, uh, why I should never shoot with color because I'll just be hooked. So yeah. I've been messing around with color and, and broke. And that too. Yes, I have. A, I do have a good stockpile. I I finally bought a new piece of gear last year, and it was nothing uh, photography related. It was just a freezer to house the uh, uh, the excess film. So the fiance is very uh, angry with me about that. But the uh, uh, I have I have enough color film now. <laughs> um, I, I've been messing around with processes lately, and uh, last year I. I had a few successful attempts at doing some uh, black and white reversal process. And I've been just trying to like wrap my head around how early color processes did their thing. So I'm, uh, I'm tooling up to get, get back going with that, but not just black and white now looking into playing around with some color reversal, um, maybe even doing some uh, paper reversal. I've seen some folks mess around with that. I just love the, the limited palette that you get uh, from from expired materials. Uh, I, I've always loved the look of uh, Polaroid 809, which is uh, quite possibly the most expensive uh, instant film you can get addicted to. And Well, it's, it's all expensive, horrible. isn't it? It's all expensive now. Yes, it's all, I mean, you can pay, if you want to, $2,200 for 15 shots of that stuff. Um, I don't think it's worth that, but it's, you know, that's what it's going for. Have you used the Impossible 810? Uh, this is a very sore subject. Oh, sorry, Polaroid originals now, but you know what I mean. Yes. Oh no, it's just a sore subject because um, 
me and the community are not very happy with uh, Polaroid right now. It's Polaroid Originals has not made any new 8x10 materials or Spectra materials in about a year and a half. No, I've been after Spectra. But the whole the whole impossible thing, I mean, I was a pioneer, so I know where you're going with this, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but they've moved, their, their customer base has moved, quite frankly, you know, and, and a lot of us older people who were with them at the beginning are... Well, I'm, I've gone past the point of being miffed, really, because I've just felt I just feel disengaged with the whole thing now, but, which is a real shame. But it's know. unfortunate to see. But I mean, you would think if they make a film and it sells out within two days that it's a popular film. But that's yeah. just yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. But Spectra, I don't know what the vibe is there. You know, but. Uh, they had a lot of people hooked, and then they just stopped producing it. Yeah. So it's you know they they have their their marketing is uh, they're pushing they're pushing direct and stores and things like that. So yep. it's great that they're getting people interested, but it's just unfortunate the people that dropped off in the process. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, color. So you were- color. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying. So that's the thing. I'm hooked on color, but I I have to eat. So I'm trying <laughs> to find ways to make color uh, work for me uh, that doesn't. Uh, drive me broke because really the, the oh, you could try all that what's all that crazy combining shooting through three different colored filters and yes. then laying all that yes. sort of, you could get right back into the old process shoot through three different colored filters and then combine the image and do you not end up with a color picture or is that is that just no, you, is that you, just witchcraft no you do just you do end up with a color picture now <laughs> the, the problem with three filters is by the time you put three pieces of 810 film together you're about the you're getting close to the cost of uh, a piece of color. <laughs> so it's, it's about, can we do it in one? Is it mm. possible to do in one? They did, uh, they were able to do autochromes. That's so right. I, yes, autochromes, lovely, lovely process. So, and yeah, I think what I think a lot of us remember when we think of these early color processes is this limited color palette mm-hmm. and the limited color palette is what gives you that, that really unique feel. So looking into this and playing around with the different, uh, different ways to try and produce color, um, it, it gets me, I think it gets me reconnected with other things I like about film photography that people don't talk about. Like it is a strictly worse process. If I, if I were to, to pay for something that's a hundred megapixel, you know, digital. Yes, it's a cleaner, more finished image, but it doesn't have that same feeling, and I'm not rewarded with the same, uh, same good feelings when I, I make a shot and it does have that that look uh, for, from a large format negative. So that's uh, that's kind of what I'm playing around with now. Um, I'll be updating the site with with all sorts of uh, some goodies with that, but it's uh, it's it's fun. I'm trying to do other things to shake it up, you know black and white and nature they're kind of second hand or second nature to me anymore they uh uh, i'm just trying to shake it up yeah yeah we haven't really we've talked about your barbershop work but there's some other projects you have on there aren't there some uh, landscape shots done somewhere i haven't got your web page open sorry uh, oh that's right i was going to say i've got the infrared page open at the moment and oh yeah that was the other thing you were really keen on wasn't it infrared oh i I still have a lot of that Um, yes yeah I mean, just just a thing about infrared. Sometimes you can look at an infrared photo. I mean, and we're talking about uh, black and white infrared rather than um, uh, full color, color mm-hmm. uh, infrared. And uh, and there's there's always this thing about infrared. You can sometimes see a photograph and you and you can be just like blown away by it at first. But it's generally or quite often, but just simply the novelty effect of what you, what you're looking at. You know, and you can look like, oh, that's that's really interesting. And then. Whereas the photos I'm, I'm looking through here, they've got that effect that, you know, oh, this is this is really nice. But you look at them again and I think, well, 
it doesn't really matter that these are actually in, in infrared. These would look good in in normal film, mm -hmm. and uh, and I, I think that's 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 just just wonderful because I think you can just get carried away with you know what's going to look interesting with infrared and concentrate on that. But no, you've 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 still concentrated on the overall photograph and but you you know that certain things are going to come out with it. So I think I think it's just beautiful work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's definitely it goes back into that aspect of control. It's uh, yes, you can go for that textbook black sky, uh, black water infrared effect. But if you if you kind of use the subtleties of it, you can also focus exactly like things in the composition. So that, that's what I'm about. Um, I still have uh, I'm doing that thing that I, I say never to do where I'm like sitting on a stockpile of uh, of my F key infrared, which is no longer made. And then I also managed to get a hold of about 50 sheets of the good stuff, the uh, Kodak HIE, which is just amazing. Right. Well, I, I think um, we're, we're pushing your, your, your time with us now because uh, you, you have got a proper job and you're, <laughs> you're going to yes. Yes, <laughs> uh, be on, on, on your way soon. So, uh, um, I think this is a, a, a good time now um, to give you an opportunity for um, any shout outs, people that you might want to uh, say, say hello to and uh, or uh, let people know how people can follow you in the, the kind of work that you do, whether it be uh, audio or um, on the Internet. Oh, well, sure. Uh, if folks want to check out my work, they can head to my website, which is just my last name.com. They can go to M-A-R-R-A-S-H.com um, or they can go to mattmirage.com. It's M-A-T-M-A-R-R-A-S-H.com. Uh, they can see all my work there. It's all, most of it's 810 work. Um, I mean, it really doesn't matter. If you like the photos, you like the photos. Um, I'm also, if you ever see this handle on social media, M-A-T-4226, that's me. So um, I'm I'm an old fuddy-duddy. I'm not on Instagram. Uh, I kind of missed the boat on that one. So, um, But I, I lurk and also do stuff on behalf of the film photography uh, podcast uh, Instagram on there. Uh, so if, if you want to hear uh, some crazy antics and my occasional uh, leveling out of that on FPP, they can go to filmphotographyproject.com to check that stuff out. Um, but yeah, this is this has been great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and uh, and uh, just to recap, your your yeah. place of your place of employment as well. You can give them oh, another quick shout. Absolutely. Out. Yeah, they can check us out. Uh, if you need you need photo gear, we have uh, everything all through traditional materials. We actually have some good eight by ten cameras right now. That's Midwest Photo, and they can go to mpex.com to check that out. And then uh, we also have a rental darkroom space, uh, and you can find out more about that stuff at mpex.com forward slash learn. Excellent. And um, I just uh, realized that I, there's a couple of things we, we also need to do. So I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you in a moment, Matt. Uh, sure. The uh, first one is that we have a page uh, where people can donate to us. And uh, we have two serial um, <laughs> donators um, to us at the moment. We have uh, James Thorpe and Christopher J. May, um, who have uh, donated twice to us now. In fact, in fact, James Thorpe actually has donated while we're on air um, so uh, i think that's quite impressive um so uh, just a couple of comments uh, on there um james and this is actually a couple of weeks ago now when when he made this comment uh, he was just asking um about why we don't have a uh, a recurring uh, payment option 
Um, so, uh, so he can save himself time and not have to come onto the page and, and uh, give us a, a, a donation. And uh, the, the, just the reason for that, James, was that to have a recurring donation, we have to have a payment plan set up uh, on the coffee page. That's uh, ko-fi.com. Um, and we didn't do that because we weren't sure anybody was going to donate to us. <laughs> so, we'd, you know, it's, uh, it cost us a few pounds to, uh, to to make the show, but we certainly didn't want to have to have a situation where we were going to lose money on the show uh, by having this page. But uh, thanks to James and thanks to uh, Christopher, um, the, hmm. the page is paying for itself and it is helping us. Um, so, and we've I've now set it up so that, uh, as James has already discovered, um, a recurring uh, payment option is is now in place. Oh, that's, that's awesome thank you so much guys that's really nice of you that's it and uh, just a quick mm. message from uh, christopher j bay um and he says uh since andrew mentioned mentioned it on the show he has four coffees um for the <laughs> one for every show <laughs> exactly um oh, that's and, very generous but he's, but five he, now come it's, on it's, it's, yes. well he's 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 done three coffees before so um oh, no. there you go what can you what can you say um uh, he's not sure if he'd be able to keep that up for long. <laughs> and, and that, that's not really a surprise. So uh, th thank, thank you there, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Christopher. Um, now, one thing, we do have an email, which I think we've pretty much run out of time for, and that's actually from James Thorpe. So I think we'll do that email next week. Uh, sorry, not next week, but on, on the on the next show. So uh, bear with us on, uh, on your question there. And Matt, uh, there was a question from Neil Piper, which I'm not going to pursue with, you now but you're 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 a member of our facebook group um yes so maybe i'll ask you this question via the facebook group but basically so neil i'll give you a heads up neil was asking uh, your thoughts on point and shoot four by five i.e the camera dactyl og don't know sure if you're familiar with the camera dactyl og but oh uh, i'm i'm very familiar uh we so. actually just had the uh the creator ethan moses on an episode of the film photography podcast uh, which will be showing up in the future uh, and I, I personally worked with that camera for two months so i know the ins and outs uh, of it i would be happy to go into gross detail about that uh yeah, sure. group. But let's let's save that for the facebook group because i think that's a perfect vehicle for it um for, for because there are a lot of people who are kind of interested in shooting large format handheld uh, I've, I've always been ever since i saw the one wanderlust was it the wanderlust camera on kickstarter a few years ago which never really came to much but so yeah we can pursue that neil on the facebook group i'll kick that off for you when we finish recording that's it and uh ethan will be a, a future guest on our show as well well, uh, yeah, he, uh, he might we, he might even be on before it airs on the FPP because you guys have just finished recording a bunch of shows. I saw somewhere on, uh, uh, yes. on social media, and it's never it's uh, I never know uh, what the turnaround is going to be, but I know it'll be thorough. <laughs> how, how many do you record in one go? Is that and is that typical or? It's that's pretty typical. We are yeah. coming from uh, all over the place, so yeah. there's usually there's usually a few big uh, big sessions and then little uh, satellite ones as well. Yeah, it always looks like so much fun. And then oh, I just is. imagine you all going down the pizza place afterwards or whatever you do. Oh, Pizza Friday. It's a, yes, we have to. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, Andrew, have you, have you got any shout outs this week? Uh, Steve Segsby. But I've shouted him out already. <laughs> exactly. If you don't already follow Steve, um, he's just Google him. Uh, but he's certainly on Twitter. Um, Instagram, maybe? I can't remember now. 
He's also a part of what's called the Inside the Outside Collective. He's very much into landscapers' metaphor, under getting into the detail of landscape, exploring landscape in detail. So he's a great guy. And, yeah, hook him up, and we're going to get him on the show at some point okay. once um, we go weekly. <laughs> Which you, you keep threatening that to me, don't you? Um, <laughs> at, at some point, you never know. Um, <sighs> But uh, I've got uh, just, it's, it's not really a shout out, uh, but it's a case of there's uh, something coming up next Sunday. Uh, it's the 19th of May. Uh, there's an event in London called Photographica and it's held at the Royal Horticultural Society's Lindley Hall in Vincent Square, um, Victoria, Central London. And that is the largest single uh, get together of uh, people that trade in um, used and vintage camera equipment and so there'll be uh, tons of uh, film equipment in there and i expect uh, there'll be a, a good amount of large format uh, gear there um, i will have a table uh, where i'll be selling some of my stuff i, I haven't got any uh, large format stuff uh, to sell because i want to keep it all <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm just selling the other stuff, uh, the smaller formats. I'll be uh, I've got quite a few things uh, that I'll be I'll be taking along. So it'll be great if um, people could say hello to me. I'll be uh, I'll be more than happy to talk uh, uh, film in general, not just large format, and also adapting lenses to digital, whatever. Um, I'm I'm I'll be up for a chat. I'll be there for about seven hours. Um, hmm. So um, yeah, come come along and uh, say hello. So that's on the nineteenth uh, of May. Um, okay, um, Matt, I just want to thank you again for, for being a great guest. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I know uh, uh, I know we kind of branched off into a bunch of topics, but hopefully this can be of some, some use to folks that are just getting into it. And, uh, you know, if they ever have a question, uh, I'm an open book. You can always feel free to shoot me a message on the Facebook group, um, or I might even post my email for questions on there if you, if you guys have it. It's uh, you can also reach out on my website. So please feel free to hit me up. That's that's my job is to help get people into this stuff and uh, you know educate. So we'll we'll put all of those all of those links in the uh, in the podcast notes, which will be available to see in the uh, in our Facebook group, which is um, the Large Format Photography Podcast Facebook group. Uh, um, Andrew, uh, mm. do you want to let people know how people can keep up with the things that you're up to? Yeah, sure. They, they can find me across most social media platforms as Warboys Snapper. Uh, I have some pinhole stuff on Warboy Snapper underscore pinholes. That's something to do with another podcast. And you'll see me hanging out quite a lot on the Facebook group and on Flickr because I still love Flickr. So that's uh, you, you see, you're a bit, bit shy about mentioning that other podcast, so I'll mention it. And that's the Lensless podcast, <laughs> which, it is. Uh, which you do every week again now because you're, you're back doing it. Yeah, we're back. Back with a vengeance. So, and I, I did some pinhole uh, for Will Pinhole uh, Photography Day as well a couple, couple of weeks ago and uh, enjoyed that far more than I expected to. Um, and uh, actually, I used I use my Meridian camera to do that as well uh, with a with a homemade pinhole. And that was great. That was, great results as well because I've seen them. It was great fun too. Um, so from uh, myself, I have a website where I sell uh, things which most people listening to this podcast won't be interested in, <laughs> and that's simonforsterphotographic.co.uk. Drugs. Uh, yeah. I also have um, uh, an eBay 
shop if you do a search for It's Fozzy on the ebay.co.uk. That's uh, I-T-S-F-O-Z-Z-Y um, is the name of the group there, name of the, the page. Uh, you can hear me every week uh, again now on the Classic Lenses podcast. Um, I've already mentioned our, our Facebook group. We have an email address. Um, so if you want to send any emails in, um, please do so uh, to classiclensespodcast at gmail.com. And actually think about it. I've, I've already mentioned about you know the, the future coming of uh, Jason Lane to the show. Uh, if you do have any large format related uh, lens questions in particular that you're interested in certain formulations and things like that no no harm in starting to send those 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 questions in now um, so last last thing uh, to say is to thank Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com for the theme music that we use which is called two finger Johnny and um, and that's that's I, no- I normally snigger at that point. You but do, anyway, do you I'm, get... I'm obviously getting a bit more serious in my old age. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, jo- the joke's worn thin now. So um, that's it for this week. I, I hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to Matt as much as we have. And um, that's it. So uh, it'll be great if you can join us next time. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.